All right, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, grab your phone or any other device you might have. I hope that you can take a look at it with me in Acts chapter 11. If you're new here to Redeemer, generally what we do is work through books of the Bible, and we're in the midst of doing that in this book of Acts. Um, I posted on Facebook earlier in the week and then included it in my Friday email that as I was thinking about this text over the last couple of weeks, I wasn't terribly excited about it because it, it seemed to be just another recount of what we just spent chapter 10, verses 1 through 48, seeing two times over. The story was told seemingly twice in chapter 10, and now we're going to get it a third time. And so I even thought a couple weeks ago, maybe I'm going to preach chapter 10, 1 through 48. Wow, I might as well just include 18 more verses because it seems to be the same story. But as I sat down Monday morning, I started with a prayer. God, if there's glory in this passage, I want to see it. And then thankfully, I quickly caught myself. No, Lord, there is glory in this passage. I just don't see it. Would you help me? And I've read this passage, I don't know, at least dozens of times in my life. I teach the book of Acts every year up at the Canuckuck Institute. We have to go very fast, and so we kind of skim over lots of it. And so I've never really had to teach just this chapter, just this paragraph. And so after praying that and reading through it with, Lord, I'm going to teach these verses it seemingly jumped off the page at me. Now you might read it and go, boy, Mitch, that was really clear. I can't believe you didn't see that all these years. But I'm glad that I saw it. I went jogging this morning just thinking over my sermon and praying, and this is going to be way overstated, but at least this thought came to my mind. This may be the most important sermon I'm overstating it, but this is the thought that I've ever preached at Redeemer. If God would so move, maybe so. So over the last two years, I've been a part of this evangelism cohort out of the Billy Graham School up at Wheaton. The, the uh, equation we've been working with, uh, Dr. Rick Richardson as he's been leading us, is missional leaders plus missional congregations equal conversion communities. What they've done is they've studied churches all over the country that are seeing lots of people come to faith in Jesus, making first-time commitments to Jesus Christ and then sticking, if you will, at that church family. For them, a conversion community is a church that sees 10% conversion growth each and every year. Just think about that. If there were 400 men, women, and children who make up Redeemer Community Church, it would be this year 40 people, men, women, boys, girls, making first-time commitments to Jesus Christ and then sticking, connecting at Redeemer. That's a wow, right? How awesome would that be? I don't think we're even close 
And so, missional leaders, it all starts with the pastor living on mission with Jesus, living a, a missional life that the people of his congregation can follow. And so that's what a lot of the blessed strategy has been about. That here's a, here's a strategy of living on mission with Jesus that anybody can do. I can begin with prayer. I can listen with care. I can eat with my non-Christian friends. I can serve them, and I can share my story. That's what missional leaders is about. Missional congregation. Eileen, why don't you throw that first slide up here. I just want to briefly show you what the Billy Graham School has been learning, what they have taught our group of pastors, and what, by the grace of God, may become a place like Redeemer. They see conversion communities, churches that are seeing 10% growth, people making first-time commitments to Jesus and then sticking they are a group of people who initiate. They're a group of people who think about the people far from God in their life, who pray for them, and who initiate the blessed lifestyle or any other lifestyle you want to call it, but they initiate with people far from God in their life. It's not just one or two. It's, it's bunches of people in the church live that kind of lifestyle. They initiate. Secondly, they invite. It's, it's an, at these churches, it's an inviting place. They're not just initiating, but they're inviting their friends to come to church. Why don't you come join us Sunday morning? I'll, I'll meet you in the foyer. We'll sit together. Why don't you come to our men's Friday morning Bible study? It's kind of crazy sometimes, but I think you'll enjoy it. Why don't, why don't you come to the Top golf, the guys, a bunch of us guys are going to top golf Sunday evening. Come with us. The women's ministry, Dr. Liz Lee is coming on August 18th, and man, she's just fantastic. Come, come with me. They're an inviting place. They're, they're initiating with people, and they're, they're, they're just inviting. These kinds of churches, that's, the, that's what they do. They also include. What this means is that when they come, the church family includes them, doesn't stiff-arm them, but says, hey, good to meet you. Wow, why don't you come sit with us? Hey, we have community group every other Sunday night. You ought to come and visit. Maybe it's a place you like. You say, wait a minute, Mitch. These people might not even be Christians. Exactly. But you're, inviting, you're including them in what's going on in the life and in the community that you enjoy at your church, these churches that are conversion communities that see people, lost people, come into the fold and eventually make a first-time commitment to Jesus and stick. They initiate, they invite, and then they include. Hey, we're so glad you're here. Then they even involve them. One of the stories they would tell us often in our cohort was a church up in the Chicago area where um, this person uh, knew this, how would it go? They came to church, they saw a, a, an old friend that they knew was not a follower of Jesus, but they said, John, 
wow, it's, it's good to see you. And John, what John was doing is he had two coffee carafes and he was heading across the foyer, headed to a classroom. So, wow, John, it's good to see you here. Uh, you know, how long have you been coming to church here? And he said, well, I really don't have time to talk because I've got to take these coffee crafts down here, but this is my second week. Second week. He'd come to church. Some folks had opened their arms to him and said, hey, man, can you help us out? Yeah, what do you need me to do? Can you take these coffee carafes and take them down to that classroom? Sure, I can do that. Involving them in what's going on. Now, there's places of service at Redeemer that we probably wouldn't want people who are far from God serving in. But there are places that maybe they can. Where they can get involved in what's going on in the life and community of Redeemer Community Church start to get involved. And then finally, they invest. These new people that are coming, that they're including and that they're involving, they, they invest into them the, the truth of the gospel and the grace of God. They invest in them the truth of the gospel and the grace of God. It's not that they just sweep everything under the rug about them being sinners and far from God. There's just a sense of, of patience and love, and in the midst of that, we're sharing the gospel with them, we're sharing the word of God with them, they're participating with us, they're involved. Maybe what's different about these days than prior days in prior days, people would believe, and then they would belong. And it seems that the atmosphere in America today and over the last several, several years has been people often will belong before they ever believe. They'll come be a part. They'll be included. They'll start to get involved. And through that process... And through that engagement, and as God's people lovingly and patiently invest in them, they come to understand the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus, and they believe. And then, of course, it's just a cycle. There are many obstacles and challenges to becoming that kind of congregation, and may God help us. We can be deceived. People really don't need the gospel in order to be saved. We can be distracted from this kind of lifestyle, this kind of church. I mean, lots of plenty of things to be distracted by. We can get discouraged. Hey, I've, I've tried to live the mission of life, but it just didn't go so well, and so we quit. We can get disqualified by the life we know that we're living that's inconsistent. We know that we're no different than the world, and so we get we feel disqualified to be able to extend God's love to others. We get scared. But there's one right here in chapter 11 that I think we're going to have to, by God's grace, overcome this if we ever want to be this. Chapter 11, verse 1. 
Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. If you were here last week, you remember chapter 10, 1 through 48. It was a significant event. The gospel in chapter 2 of Acts had gone to the Jews. And in chapter 8, it had gone to the half-Jews, the Samaritans. And that was a big deal. And now in chapter 10, it went to the Gentiles, to the Gentile dogs. People who weren't Jewish, they weren't even part Jewish. They were no Jewish at all. They were the Gentiles. In chapter 10, Peter had a vision and these unclean animals that were brought down before him. Kill and eat, Peter. No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God will say, what I've cleansed, don't you consider unclean anymore. Three times over, God will say that to him. And at the same time, this Gentile, Cornelius, will have a vision. An angel will appear to him and say, send for Peter. He's got something to tell you. And so these men will come and they'll find Peter and say, come back to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Gentile and he invites his, he has his Gentile family and his Gentile friends there. And Peter is given an opportunity to preach. And he shares the gospel of Jesus. These Gentiles believe and the Holy Spirit of God is given to the Gentiles just as he had been given to the Jews way back in chapter 2. Significant event. And yet, verse 2, start again in verse 1. The apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Uh-oh. The leadership in Jerusalem, the circumcised, those are the Jews, took issue with Peter. And if you look down at verse 18, when they heard this, they quieted down. And began to, after Peter explains things to them, they quieted down. What that means is what's taking place here in verse 2 and 3, they were being pretty loud about Peter, what in the world are you going to a Gentile's house for? You know that the Gentiles aren't like us. You know that the Gentiles are unclean. You know that they touch unclean things. They eat unclean things. That's why we don't go there, because we are not going to get unclean. My first point is, if someone, if you will, if, if somebody here at Redeemer or more and more of you here at Redeemer start to go all missional, and you start to initiate in the lives of people far from God, and you start to invite them here, the rest of us, we got to be really careful of this kind of inclination in our heart. Where are these people coming from? Did you see the way she was dressed? Did you hear him? I mean, out there in the foyer, he's throwing down. You know, I, I heard that, they're, that they're, they're not married, but they're living together. Peter did his thing. In chapter 10, Cornelius and his family are now in. And the Gentile dogs are showing up. You can imagine that if God would so do this, 
if God would so move more and more and more of us to begin to initiate in ways we never have and begin to invite people, just come. That people might begin to walk into our doors that if we're not careful, we could begin to look down upon and be arrogant towards and have a haughty spirit. Lost people. They took issue. You went where, Peter? Who's now a part of the family of God? Will you take issue? Will you get alarmed? Oh, I would hope for a whole bunch of initiators and a whole bunch of inviters. And oh, I would hope that not any of us would take issue. Peter's going to call it down in verse 17, standing in the way of what God is doing. Who were the ones who took issue with Jesus when he befriended the lost, spent time with them? Remember who they were? The Pharisees, right? Almost synonymous with a judgmental spirit in Luke chapter 5. After that, Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. You know tax collectors. They're always coupled with sinners in the New Testament. The tax collectors and the sinners. These were Jewish people who were collecting taxes from their own Jewish brothers and sisters to give to Rome. They were hated. Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. He, he said to him, follow me. And Levi left everything behind, got up and began to follow Jesus. And Levi gave a big reception for Jesus in his house and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They took issue loudly. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Verse 4 down through 17 is Peter's defense, if you will. I'm summarize it simply as this, that you and I need to remember what God is doing. Here's what Peter said. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them an orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing, observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times and everything was drawn back up into the sky. Peter, as a good Jewish man, made distinctions between clean foods that he could eat and unclean foods that he had to shun or reject. 
And as well, the Jewish people would make distinctions among those who were clean and those who were unclean. Jews wouldn't normally go to an unclean Gentile's house. And yet, Peter's saying, yeah, but God has taught me what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. All my life, I've, all my life, for a long time I've thought and even shared with you last week, three times. Why did God do this three times? And last week I shared what it may well be. Remember, Peter's the one who denied Jesus three times. Peter's the one who, after Jesus' resurrection, Peter had gone back fishing, thought his life was over, and yet Jesus came to him. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Three times over, Jesus asked him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And here, three times, he sees this vision. That may well be it. But as I was thinking about this and pondering this this week, I wonder, some of you have heard this before, in the Bible, there is no bold text, right? You can't italicize things. So what does God do in the Scriptures when He's really serious about something? He repeats it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Truly, truly, I say to you, I wonder if I've been wrong about the three-time denial, three times do you love me, three times the sheet coming down. I wonder if this is God saying to Peter and to the church of the ages, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Maybe that's why it gets chapter 10, verses 1 through 48, and chapter 11, verse 1 through 18, and it's going to come up again in chapter 15. So Peter's saying, this happened, and then verse 11, and behold, at that moment, when, when I'd had this three times vision, behold, at that moment, so God is at work in this, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. Remember that from last week? These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. These six brethren, these are six Jewish brethren. So Peter and his six Jewish buddies went with these three Gentiles to go back to Cornelius' house. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he, Cornelius, reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who's also called Peter, brought here. He will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. If you're keeping count over in chapter 10, verse 47, this has just happened, Peter preached, they believe the Spirit came, verse 47, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized, to have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? Verse 15, chapter 11, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. So two key phrases here, Gentiles also, Gentiles also, Gentiles also, 
but just as, just as. Just as he fell upon the Jews when they believed the word of God, in the same way he fell upon the Gentiles when they believed the word of God. These unclean Gentiles. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them, the Gentiles, the same gift as he gave to us, the Jews, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? By implication, Peter is saying, if you take issue with this, if you intend to stop this, you are standing in God's way. Verse 4 down to 17 to me is simply Peter saying, we got to remember the gospel. We got to remember the gospel. Peter, why'd you do this? Because this is the gospel. This is what God is now teaching me. Is that His grace and His love and His mercy is extended to everybody. That's what God is in the business of doing. He called you, didn't He? You bunch of sinners. He called every one of us. We're just a bunch of sinners saved by grace. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is listing a, a group of, of sinners who will not enter the kingdom of God unless they experience His grace. But he said this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Paul could have added to that list of sins and said, such were all of you. Because elsewhere he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. Or Paul would say in Titus 3, y'all know I like this one, remind them, God's people, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of, our God, of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 1, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace. Peter, why are you doing this? The grace and the mercy of God 
is for everybody. We're not to stiff arm anybody. We're not to take issue with anybody who's reaching out and inviting lost people into the family. We're not to stand in God's way. Finally, verse 18. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? The inclination of their heart in verses 1, 2, and 3 was to put a stop to it. Take issue loudly to stand in God's way. But when Peter reminded them what God is up to, God is up to extending His mercy and His grace to any and everybody who will humbly come. They heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. If somebody, if bunches of bodies start to go all missional, and they start to initiate out there, and they start to invite folks in, folks that are different than you and me, Don't be judgmental. Remember what God's doing and rejoice. Rejoice. Glorified God. Wow. God is doing something awesome. The very next paragraph we'll look at next week, a church will be planted way north in Antioch, and it will be made up of, guess who? Jews and Gentiles in one body together. Here's what I'd love for us to do at Redeemer. Well, let me back up. What's going to happen as a result of Jews and Gentiles being made one in the body of Christ? A big mess. If you've read the New Testament... It's a mess that shows up over and over and over and over again. Jewish and Gentile relations in the one body of Jesus. Even Peter, who's the main dude in all of this, is going to stumble and fall and have to be rebuked by Paul in Galatians chapter 1, chapter 2, for going backwards on this. Maybe we'll look at that some other time in this context. It, it's going to produce a mess. It's going to produce problems. It's going to produce things that they'll have to work through and figure out how does God's mercy and God's grace and God's truth apply in situations like this. But how cool is that? That they're having to work through the big issues because of the grace and the mercy of God. So to close, I'd like to encourage you to take the Acts 11 pledge. I just came up with the Acts 11 pledge this morning on my run. So if you don't want to take the pledge, you don't have to take the pledge. 
Let's be like Jesus, the friend of sinners. Commenting on that story of when when Jesus reached out to Matthew, Levi, and Levi started to follow him, and Levi said, hey, Jesus, I'm going to throw a party at my house. I'm going to bring a bunch of sinners there. And Jesus said, awesome, I'll be there. And Jesus went, and the Pharisees and the scribes showed up and said, what are you doing? And Jesus said, listen, I, I didn't come for the righteous, but for the sick. So why I came is to call repent sinners to new life. Daryl Bach, New Testament scholar, Luke scholar, writes, the physician seeks out the sick and calls them into the hospital room of God's care. In the context of personal acceptance, they, meaning those who are sick, the the unbelieving, in the context of personal acceptance, they may begin to listen, open up to God, and find the way to spiritual health. What Luke wishes his readers to see is that a gracious door of care is offered to all. Sinners are asked to sense their need. Thus, the mission extends to all and takes the initiative in seeking them out. It takes an open door to create open hearts. It is that openness that Jesus exemplifies in his willingness to risk ridicule and associate with sinners. Should not his disciples do likewise?